Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. Uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. That would be Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. Or if you run a small business or are with a good nonprofit doing good work, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking to sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dining-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open from Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Hey, and thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Okay, so what have we got for you this week? Uh, you know, a few months back, I called Iowa the third reddest state in the nation. That didn't settle well with some Iowa Democrats. We'll discuss that and its relevance beyond Iowa. We'll also talk with Jessica Wiskus, a landowner along the route of one of the carbon dioxide pipelines, and they're doing some interesting work that's having an impact and for our farm and food conversation, Kathy Burns and I will talk about what it means for a restaurant to be truly local. And sorry, it's not as easy and black and white as you might think. Okay, but first, it is my great honor to welcome Dennis Kucinich to the program. Dennis served in the U.S. Congress and has a fascinating political history, dating back to him being, I believe, the youngest mayor ever elected in Cleveland decades ago. Uh, Dennis also ran for president, and uh, I'm delighted to have him on the program. Dennis, welcome. Ed, it's great to uh, be with you and Kathy, and I'll tell you, this is uh, a, a beautiful day to be talking about what's happening with uh, the Democratic Party and what's happening in the world. I, I, I always appreciate uh, uh, the meetings that we've had over the, over the many years, and I look forward to this discussion. Yeah, so uh, let's start with um, let's start with politics before we talk about foreign policy. So, you know, you've got uh, some interesting dynamics happening nationally when it comes to politics. I mean, you've got states like Iowa and Florida, which are more red than they've ever been, and at the same time, you've got states like Georgia and Arizona that are marginally blue, uh, and you've got a U.S. Congress that is split. <laughs> Yeah, I, you've got a very divided country in very weird ways. What do you, what do you have? What, what's your shed some light on that for us, Dennis? Well, you know, first of all, I, Iowa and, and Florida are different for a lot of reasons. And you know, when I think back uh, 20 years ago, and I've seen over the last 20 years the loss of, of industry in Iowa and the uh, monopolies that have grown in agriculture, uh, Iowa's been caught in a squeeze. And the quality of life that people work so hard for, they've uh, uh, it it just didn't materialize, despite their their strongest efforts. Uh, you know, the American economy right now is in trouble. Uh, we have let our basic manufacturing go to seed. You know, when I was in Iowa, uh, when I ran for president, I, I looked at uh, a parking lots where grass was growing, and this is where they used to make. Uh, uh, you know, washing machines and, and other goods for the rest of the country. And then was grass grown in the parking lots. And mm -hmm, I saw that yeah. all over the country. You know, we with these trade agreements with uh, NAFTA and GATT, uh, with uh, China uh, trade, 
all what we did is we gave away our seed corn. Okay, these are things that we use to survive on our basic uh, steel, automotive, uh, aerospace, shipping, and all of those small manufacturing plants, and uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of them across the country. You let it. We just look the other way, and all of a sudden those jobs were gone. That was the backbone of America. And now where are we? You know, now our whole economy is being driven by finance. And then when you see the banks start to go under, mm-hmm. uh-oh. Yeah. And you certainly saw no shortage of, uh, of decline of industrial vitality in Ohio. I remember walking through Youngstown on the Great March for Climate Action. And uh, I, I mean, some were calling Youngstown, Ohio, the largest uh, shrinking city in America. Youngstown so, took a hit because yeah. of steel. Yeah. And the steel, steel took a hit hit because of what was going on in international banking, where there was an attempt to crush the capacity in the United States because uh, the companies didn't want to pay the wages, they didn't want to give any benefits, they didn't want to pay for pensions. So they, you know, systematically, there were steel plants closed across America. I was lucky to save one in the Cleveland area, which is still uh, functioning very well. But the truth of the matter is, you know, we had an economy that was based on manufacturing. And we transited to an economy based on finance, where we don't make things. We just, you know, make numbers and, and create money out of nothing. And would you say, would you say, would you say, would you say that development has hurt uh, Democratic politicians and the Democratic Party? It has, and it should have, because the ones that voted for these trade agreements were instrumental in shipping the jobs offshore and in causing. Uh, communities that were built around uh, those those businesses and supporting businesses that caused those communities to uh, uh, to wither. And I believe some, and, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I believe some of the people who, uh, some of the uh, Democratic politicians who supported those kinds of, you know, trade agreements that outsourced our jobs, that would include President Biden. Uh, it certainly would. And, you know, the, it's, it's one thing to uh, to go ahead and talk about uh, the unfair trade policies that are adversely affecting America today. It's another thing to have been instrumental in, in uh, putting those forward and putting them into law. And, and you know, the games that are going on between uh, the administration right now and China are very interesting. President Biden voted for China trade. Now he's complaining about the advantages that China has. Come on. I mean, who knew, you know, I voted against it and stood up and spoke against it because I understood that without guarantees on workers' rights, human rights, and environmental quality principles, we were going to be outmaneuvered every time in in world trade. And that's exactly what's happened. And we can't depend on Wall Street to protect us because Wall Street is in the business of making money, whether it's uh, uh, with the help of the Fed or with the government. And, uh, you know, most people aren't in that game. So the rest of the world watches while uh, Wall Street and the banks uh, take us along for a ride. And sometime that ride is wilder than Mr. Toad's. <laughs> nice metaphor. Uh, hey, you know, related to that, too, is uh, what's happening in our agricultural policy. I mean, we see a, a very, uh, you know, interesting tension here with more and more uh, people trying to get into small scale niche, niche marketing uh, that's, that's very effective. Uh, it's working very well. It's really hard work. But at the same time, you've got, for example, a consolidation of hog production. We saw that in North Carolina. We've seen it in Iowa in a big way. Way less hog farms than we ever had before, yet more hogs being produced, and a big chunk of them are for export. 
And what's also being exported, of course, along with the hogs is our soil and the, the nitrogen we pump into the soil. That's heading down to New Orleans where it's doing a heck of a lot of damage in the Gulf. It just seems like a lot of the policies that are causing the erosion of our economy are also policies that have caused the erosion of the Democratic Party. Absolutely. Look, you know, the Democratic Party used to stand for parity. The Democratic Party used to stand for the small farmers who were trying to survive and resist these monopolies. Instead, they transited over for support of the uh, monopolies in agriculture, which then uh, you had the confined animal feeding operations. You had the uh, uh, th these agribusinesses that didn't give a damn about the soil, uh, let the soil uh, wither with tons of chemicals. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, the nutritional value of the food starts to drop. Uh, and, then, and in addition to that, you, we didn't really have sound management practices where uh, taxpayers' money helped facilitate the destruction of millions of acres of farmland that went into, what, creating shopping malls for the purposes of marketing goods from China? Mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, we haven't been thinking about the future of this country. It's only about people making a quick buck right now. And to hell with the good, honest, everyday, hardworking Americans who have been trying to survive and who support this country with their taxes and their loyalty. Uh, you know, there's there's no loyalty back to, from the government to the people. Let me switch over to uh, foreign policy, Dennis. I know that's something you've always cared deeply about and are now very actively um, trying, trying, to, trying to straighten out our thinking about this. Uh, we've got this war in Ukraine. And in your report uh, recently, you talked about the lessons we should have learned from the 2003, I believe, Iraq war, which was founded on lies, lies of weapons of mass destruction, lies of Saddam Hussein's connection to 9-11. Uh, I mean, and that's not an opinion. Those, were, those are verifiable lies. And even those who right. supported the war back then admit they made the wrong call. And that would include Joe Biden as well. But so, well, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Here's the thing, Ed. You know, and, and thank you for mentioning. You know, I've, I've been posting on Substack for the last month, if people are interested and what I have to say, foreign policy, they can go to uh, uh, DennisPacinich.substack.com. Uh, but go to Substack. It's a, it started off as a colony of writers. Now it's uh, a group of writers that are really uh, changing American public opinion by uh, these are writers who are not tethered to uh, powerful publishing interest uh, groups. But anyhow, what I pointed out, you know, and I was I was in Congress during the time of the uh, of 9-11, and I saw uh, the Bush administration blame Iraq for 9-11. Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9-11, didn't have anything to do right. with al-Qaeda's role in 9-11, right. didn't have the intention of attacking the United States, certainly didn't have the capability. There were like 1% of, of uh, what we spend on, on, uh, on, on national defense. And, hello, they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, that uh, the political establishment famous, famously used to justify the attack on Iraq, which had caused a million Iraqis to die. Right. And these are civilians. These are people who didn't want any part in the war, who were just trying to live their lives, you know, created five million orphans, totally devastated the country. And so here we are, you know, trying so to uh, uh, get through this period where we reflect on what happened. But I'll tell you, uh, there are people out there still who are saying, well, that, that, you know, that was the right thing. It was not. And they're trying to uh, now take us into a war with China. 
which well, is insane. Well, and I think I think there's a fairly small group of people who who, who still would insist that Iraq was the right thing to do. They were in Iraq, but very influential. Yes. I'll tell you, you know, you go on some of these talk shows, people are out there sure. who shouldn't be who shouldn't be permitted to be seen in public. <laughs> who should hang their head in shame because right, they, right. they they cost the deaths of almost five thousand American men and women. Plus the who million served Iraqis, this country yeah. honorably, yeah. but they were not sent by honorable people. So, but now, so so okay. Clearly, there were uh, lies were behind the 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 decision to go to war in Iraq. Are, are you are you ready to say that there are lies behind the decision to help with the war in Ukraine? No question about it. I mean, it, it, this isn't even a close question. Okay, you what know, are what those lies? In 2013, the, the United States started to plan to entrap Ukraine into an international finance system where they had very little flexibility. It was going to work against the interests of their people. So the president of Ukraine at the time said, I'm not going along with this. The U.S. moved to depose him and, uh, and helped to fund uh, a, you know, a, a revolution there that overthrew the government installed someone who was friendly to the U.S. and, and, to the, um, uh, and to the West generally, and then financed uh, arms that were used to kill about 14,000 people who lived in eastern Ukraine who, who were Ukrainians but Russian-speaking. I mean, this is—and this, what, why was this done? Sure. To, to, to weaken Russia. It had nothing to do with Ukraine. Ukraine Ukrainians— as brave, courageous, long-suffering are being used as pawns in this. Because, hmm. uh, you know, why, why, if you're really for a country, would you let the lifeblood of the country get sapped? Because that's what's happening right now. It's not just Russia that's in this game. I'm not for Russia, the invasion or anything. I'm saying that the, that the United States played a dirty, dirty role in this and is stepping back while Ukraine's getting, getting slaughtered in the battlefield. Hmm. And uh, and the U.S. set the stage for this whole thing. We had an agreement called the Minsk Agreement, sure. which which could have averted a war. The U.S. didn't want to do that. And now, famously, the U.S. State Department has no interest in any peace talks. They, why do they want to do this? They want to grind, let the war grind on, uh, wear Russia down. Again, this isn't about, you know, the U.S. government doesn't care about Ukrainians. They want to wear Russia down and then pivot to go after China in a few years. And what do you, I mean, when, this, when you, when you say go after, what do you mean by go after China? What does that look like? I mean, have a war with China. You know, there are people in the U.S. government who are talking about war with China in about by 2025. Fought and, on, you know, on China. If you look at the national security documents, it's very clear that uh, China is being projected as this massive threat to America. Hey, China doesn't have 800 bases around the world the way that we have. I mean, what are we talking about here? This is We're all being played for suckers by the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about, you know, 70 years ago. So where, where does the war with China play out? Taiwan? Oh, that's what, yeah, that's the idea. I mean, okay. China, in the, in the State Department, these megalomaniacs want to make China the next Ukraine, uh, uh, Taiwan the next Ukraine, and China isn't going to go along with it. China, China is not uh, going to sit by... Uh, patiently, while the U.S. attempts to uh, uh, make Taiwan into its uh, next cat's paw. That's not going to happen. And, and I think that we need to be aware that uh, fear is being drummed up, and it's being used to expand uh, the arms budget. And the Pentagon already is, is over $800 billion. Uh, as this uh, 
a new uh, series of threats that we're conjuring goes on. Uh, it'll get over a trillion, over 50% of the disposable income of the federal government's going to go for preparing for preparing for wars. And so we got to, you know, we don't make as much steel or or as many ships anymore or or as many cars. Uh, and and but we do make enemies. Yeah. And so we we project well, an enemy of Saddam Hussein. Oh, we got to we got to kill him and, and bomb his country. And then you know, and then uh, Gaddafi, same thing. Assad, same thing. Well, it's like, when does this stop? Well, when the big, does it stop? And the big difference, of course, is you, when when you got Russia and China as your as your enemies, you've got you're dealing with countries that are armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons, which is a, a really a serious escalation of concern for me. And well, you know what, and it is for me too. Uh, the use of nuclear weapons anywhere by anybody poses a risk to everyone. Yeah. Because yeah. because of weather patterns and it's it's just we. The, the use of, of a nuclear weapon. Remember, they were doing nuclear testing all over uh, the world in the 60s, and it resulted in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in radioactivity being showing up in milk and other things. Yep. You know, we, we have to remember uh, that the path to peace isn't war. <laughs> right. You know, it seems like it's a, well, of course, you know, it goes without saying. No, we believe that uh, uh, we achieve, uh, as Gore Vidal put it, uh, perpetual peace through perpetual war. And uh, that's not right. That's, you know, uh, yeah. it's wrong thinking. And we need to focus on prosperity here in America. We need to make sure that uh, we can make things again. We need to support agriculture. We need to support and bring back the small farm. We need to break up the monopolies in agriculture. We have to make sure that the water is clean in this country because uh, a lot of it's being polluted by these chemicals that are going into the water table. But look, there's so much to be done. And yet we want to go around the world telling other people how to live. Mm. What? Dennis, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. i got to run to a break. But if people want to learn more, they want to follow your work, your your, your perspective, what, how do they do that? Yeah, uh, thanks, Ed. Uh, Substack uh, is what I'm writing uh, for and with right now, uh, com. You can go there and, and uh, see what I'm writing and you know support the effort if you'd mm. like. And also uh, I... Uh, uh, two years ago, I wrote a book that's still circulating uh, very well. It's called The Division of Light and Power. And it was about my battle as a young mayor against the monopolies in, in uh, uh, right. electricity and banking. So thank you so much. Thank Ed. you, it's Dennis. Good to be with you. And I'll look forward to speaking with you again. Folks, we've been talking with uh, Dennis Kucinich, former U.S. congressman. We've got to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be discussing Iowa's political status specifically. Is it red? Is it purple? It's certainly not blue. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. 
contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. If you like it, support it. Go to the Fallon Forum website and donate. Even better, become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, so there's a big debate here in Iowa, Florida, a bunch of other states about why things have gone so Republican. And uh, I put out a blog a while back uh, citing various statistics to suggest that Iowa was the third reddest state in the nation, and I believe somebody else pointed out it might be the only state in that status north of the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> so uh, I got, I've got some pushback from that, um, among other sources. Uh, uh, last month on Rob Sands' Facebook page, he's a he's our he's our lone Democratic state um, rep, uh, state official. He's the state auditor. Uh, uh, Rob's margin of victory was pretty tight, but uh, we, where others failed, he was able to succeed. And uh, his uh, Facebook post uh, asked that we quit the doom and gloom and go do something. Well, uh, you know, and I, I'm going to show you, and you, you, may, you, may, you may agree, I, I agree with some of the analysis, you may agree with more of it than I do. I'll give you the analysis, then I'll respond. So <laughs> Rob, I think, playfully calls, um, calls Iowa one of the swingiest states, uh, not a real word, but I like it, and it doesn't imply anything uh, in terms of uh, interpersonal relationships. Uh, you could also say one of the purplest states, I suppose. Um, he cites some facts. One, uh, Iowa had the second most split-ticket voters of any competitive state in 2022. Uh, the vast majority of Iowans who voted to re-elect Rob Sand also voted for Attorney General Tom Miller and Treasurer Mike Fitzgerald both of whom lost narrowly. Now, just a comment on that. Tom Miller was the longest-serving uh, attorney general in the U.S., I believe. Uh, we also had the longest-serving governor. That was Governor Branstad, a Republican. Miller, a Democrat. Um, Mike, Mike Fitzgerald, a Democrat, he also might have been. He was, if he wasn't the longest-serving uh, treasurer in the U.S., he had to be close to it. A fairly low-key you know, low office. I remember talking with Mike back when... I ran for governor in 2006, and he was considering it. And we were comparing notes. When he first got elected, which would have been, I think, 1990 or 1988, again, a long time ago, he, uh, he said he raised $6,000. He spent $6,000 on a statewide race in a state of, at that time, almost 3 million people. Now, my first campaign in 1992, I raised $6,000, which was not much even back then. Uh, but nowadays, I mean, it's, it's like multiple millions you've got to raise for any of these offices. For a state legislative seat, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's gotten ridiculous. Um, 
I digress a bit, but I'm going to tie that back in with the conversation later. Uh, the point is that Miller and Fitzgerald got beat. That they'd never, they'd never been successfully challenged. It, they'd always run one pretty handily. They got beat, and I, you call it, you can call it narrow, narrow defeat. But I'm not sure it was that narrow, really. Uh, they, they, they both lost by a pretty decent margin, by my assessment. So, um, yeah, so yeah, we had some comp competitive uh, races in terms of voters splitting their ticket, voting for, for example, the Republican candidate for governor and voting for Miller or Fitzgerald or, in Rob's case, Rob Sand. You know, I get that. That's one way to measure whether or not a state is red. But um, to me, the bottom line in the end, uh, these candidates are losing. <laughs> uh, losing seats that they have held for decades. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's more than just about uh, split-ticket voters. That, that's about something wrong with the Democratic Party. For these statewide officials who have been Democrats and have been in office since, I think, the 80s or early 90s at least, are losing. So um, the, uh, an entity called Inside Elections, it's a nonpartisan publication that put Iowa's partisan baseline uh, between Georgia and Ohio— um, both of which have Democrats in the U.S. Senate. Iowa does not. In fact, Iowa does not have a single member of Congress. Uh, both of our senators are Republicans. All four congressional districts are now Republican. And, uh, you know, again, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's, I, don't, I don't know much about inside elections. I guess that's, that's one way to measure, measure uh, how, you know, purple, quote, purple your state is. Rob also points out the average U.S. Senate race in 2022, there was a margin of 18.1 percent. Uh, the Senate candidate who won won by 18.1. Iowa's was 6.6 percent. Again, interesting. I'm, I'm not sure how helpful that is overall. It's, it's something. <laughs> so the, the average U.S. House race uh, in 2020, the margin there was about 28.8 percent. Iowa's was 10.5 percent. And this is an important point that Rob adds. And if you leave out Iowa's fourth district, the other, th and that's that's the very very Republican leaning district in Western Iowa that used to be held by Steve King, the other three Iowa districts averaged a margin of 1.3 percent. Yeah, they were close. All three, the uh, first, second, and third districts were all reasonably close. And again, and this is something that that people in the party might agree with me on. I think one reason those candidates they were there were some. They were good candidates. Uh, I think one reason they lost is they were there. There was no help from the National Democratic Party, or very little, uh, compared to what the Republican candidates were receiving. That's you know, I, I hate to say that money is such a big part of it, but that matters. That matters a lot. Money is a big part of why Rob won. And again, Rob did not win by much. It was very very close. And and that and that was against a candidate that the Republican governor in this state did not get behind. So Rob won for various reasons. We can talk more about that, but let's go back to this, uh, these numbers. Um, again, inside elections, among all the states, Iowa is ranked as the 10th most evenly divided. Again, states like California, New York, Massachusetts, way up there in terms of the democraticness, um, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. On the other end, Iowa, the 10th most evenly divided. Again, I, I get that. <laughs> uh, 
Iowa is also one of only three states that each party has won twice in the last four presidential elections. That's interesting. Sure, you know, you've got, uh, of course, all Obama won twice. Trump won twice. Before Obama, uh, Bush won. Uh, and then before Bush, um, Gore won, barely. So, yeah, Iowa has been all over the board in terms of presidential elections. And uh, interestingly, you know, some of the states that are considered more red than Iowa have Democratic governors or have Democratic members of Congress. And it, it's, um, you know, my thought is, okay, you can crunch these numbers all you want. You can, you can look at all sorts of different numbers as well. Some of the numbers I looked at were like, okay, even, even Mississippi, I think Alabama maybe as well, has a Democratic member of Congress. One reason Iowa doesn't is because the, 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 uh, we don't have gerrymandering here. We have a very good system of, of covering up new districts every 10 years. And that, that means you don't create one heavy Democratic district to make sure that all the other ones are going to be Republicans. So that's, again, I, I think all of that to me is secondary. You know, maybe... Maybe putting a number on it, saying Iowa is the third reddest state. Yeah, maybe that's unfair. But Iowa is, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been active in politics here since 1984. Iowa has never been anywhere near this red. In fact, Democrats control the state Senate, the state House, the governor's office for four years, from 07 to 2010. And you could, I mean, I think a really good starting point for the question of why is Iowa so red right now is what went wrong in 2010? Why did Democrats, after having gained the majority, the trifecta, in fact, why did they lose uh, the, the House right away, the governor's office right away, and then eventually the Senate? And I, I think it's because the Democratic Party has, can I, you know, it's, it's okay, the Republican Party is kind of insane here in Iowa. Uh, the, their agenda is off the rails. And, you know, it's not even popular with the rank-and-file voters. Uh, there's some good polling data out here that shows that Governor Reynolds' uh, initiative on, on charter schools, on education in general, not popular. Her initiatives relevant to, uh, to you know, to uh, the GLBT community, well, mixed depending on what issue you ask about. But even those people who may support some of what she and the Republican legislature legislators have done on trans rights, on LGBT community issues, they don't think it's that important. They don't think that we should be spending our time on that. So I think what, um, what a, a state senator who was on this program recently said, you know, that it's probable that Republicans have burned enough political capital doing this. They're going to lose some seats. But they're not going to lose enough to lose the majority, not in the Senate, not in the House. I mean, these chambers are as red as they has, have ever been. They are solidly red. I mean, I, I was in the minority the whole time from 93 through 2006 when Democrats, Democrats gained the majority back. And it's never, been, it's never been anywhere near this bad in terms of a Democratic perspective. So what's wrong? Why did Democrats lose in 2010? after holding the chambers, both chambers and the governor's office for four years. I would say this. One reason they lost was because we had a governor who was, to put it politely, kind of bumbling. And he was running against Governor Branstead, came out of retirement. And Governor Branstead is, for all of his flaws in terms of his policy preferences, the most tenacious campaigner any of us have ever seen, maybe alongside Chuck Grassley. 
And so that was going to be a hard seat for any Democrat in the governor's office to retain. But certainly, you know, maybe Vilsack could have. Um, but certainly um, uh, Culver was, you know, dead in the water, even though he won four years earlier by 100,000 votes. 100,000 votes. And then he went on to lose. Again, that says something about his own tenure in office, but also about the strength of, of, of Terry Branson. But more importantly, why did the House and Senate flip? Well, because... I guess go back to 2006. Why did Democrats win the House then and, and improve their, their prospects in the Senate? Well, because they, the Republicans had failed to address some key issues. One was campaign finance reform. Again, back to money. There's way too much money in politics. We could be doing something about that. Republicans have refused. Uh, Brent, Brent, Governor Branstad even vetoed legislation way back when that would have done something about it. Another big issue Industrial-scale hog confinements. I mean, people have been really unhappy about what's happening in their rural communities because of the concentration of these confinements owned by sometimes big corporations that, ha that are headquartered within the state, sometimes out-of-state corporations, and again, much of this pork being shipped overseas, and a big chunk of that to China. So, yeah, people were getting upset about that and wanted a change. Well, maybe we can get something accomplished on those issues with Democrats. And nothing happened. Uh, in fact, if anything, hog confinements uh, proliferated even further. Uh, campaign finance, nothing got done. Uh, and and another big concern was, hey, unions have been taking it in the shorts. Let's see if a Democratic majority can help working people. And you know what? They passed one bill. They, I mean, they, they pushed several really good initiatives. And only one, there, was, there, was enough, there were enough Democrats who weren't, weren't on board that they voted against good, you know, labor-friendly initiatives. And so you have one bill that passed, and the governor, governor Culver vetoed it. So, you know, it's no surprise to me that rural Iowans said, well, to heck with both parties, but I might as well go back to what I was, a Republican. It's no surprise to me that labor unions said, oh, yeah, so um, we elect Democrats and this is what they give us? Uh, and also, when it comes to labor, Democrats helping to pass so-called free trade agreements that ship our jobs overseas, as Dennis Kucinich said in the last segment, uh, that's a big part of why Democrats in Iowa have been losing. I mean, we've lost Democrats. I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying we anymore. I'm an independent. Democrats have lost all these working class towns that were built around, you know, about, around, around in, industries that have left or... Uh, industries that have been weakened, labor unions that have been weakened. And um, again, even the rank-and-file membership of labor unions, a bunch of them are, are not supporting Democrats. And so, you know, I, I think that's the big big problem, folks. It's not, it's not which, you know, what numbers do you want to look at? You know, look at the fact that Iowa has four members of Congress, all Republican, two U.S. senators, all Republican, a, a state House and state Senate that, are, that have never, ever been this in, in my in living memory, at least for me, have never been this skewed one way or the other. And then you've got statewide office holders, all Republican except one, Rob Sand, who barely won, barely won. Despite, and again, I, I think Rob presents a profile that to me is much more encouraging and positive than what we've seen from a lot of Democrats running for higher office in this in the state. You know, he's a, he's not from Des Moines. Sorry, that helps. Uh, <laughs> uh, he he's a bow hunter. He has um, <laughs> he has a, he has heads of bucks on his office wall in uh, at the state capitol. And there there are some people who will be offended by that. But come on, 
It's a great pun, isn't it? The auditor looking out for bucks that are being wasted has bucks on his wall. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool. But he's got he's got a demeanor and an approach and and an aggressive style that is much more uh, likely to gain support of the rank and file voters in this state. But that's not enough. That's not enough. And um, and uh, I mean, we've got a party right now that is in dismal disarray, and I don't see them figuring it out. If they were going to figure it out, they would have been early on uh, campaigning against these CO2 pipelines, which now, what, 78% of Iowans polled say, yeah, uh, this is not the way to go. <laughs> they're, they're against using eminent domain to build these pipelines, and you have to use eminent domain if you really want to build them. 78%, 78% of Iowans are on that side of the issue, and Democrats still couldn't get on board with opposing these pipelines. So to me, yeah, crunch all the numbers you want. The bottom line is Democrats are out of touch with much of Iowa. Uh, they certainly have lost touch with the working class folks. They've lost touch with rural, Amer- rural Iowa. Uh, and they've lost touch with voters who are more inclined to be independent because independents are a big chunk of the electorate. They're breaking in favor of Republicans now. So yeah, that's my take on it, folks. And uh, you know, we can, we, we'll, we'll talk more about this, and maybe at some point the uh, Democrats will listen. Again, I can talk, you know, I can tell you so many stories about how Democrats have, have uh, unnerved former big-time supporters to the point where they've just left the party. Not just me. Uh, there's a long list of people who fit that description. At any rate, um, we've got to run to a short break here. When we come back, uh, Jessica Wiskus is going to join us. She is one of the Davids fighting the Goliath that is behind one of these pipelines in the upper Midwest, and they're making some headway. Very positive story, folks. We'll be back in a minute with that conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, I'd like to welcome to the program uh, Jessica Wiskus. She's a landowner 
in eastern Iowa, and she has been uh, very vocal in her concerns about the proposed carbon dioxide pipelines. Again, the upper Midwest, uh, if these all go through, we'll see thousands of miles of pipe under the soil. And in Iowa alone, 2,000 miles. And uh, this pipeline is uh, slated to go from eastern Iowa into Illinois. Jessica, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. And I want to talk about the legislation that's being uh, addressed. Uh, but first, uh, you guys have been... You guys have been spunky. You guys have had some some successes out there, haven't you? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, so there are three different carbon pipeline projects that are proposed for the state of Iowa, Summit, Navigator, and Wolf Carbon Solutions. And the Wolf Pipeline is the one that um, is proposed for our particular area here in eastern Iowa. And we have been quite spunky here. And in fact, <laughs> it's really inspiring to work with your neighbors. It, this is an issue that has just brought all of us together. And so, for example, uh, I, I called a sort of last minute meeting. I, I only gave three days notice you know, to people and organized a last minute community meeting here because of the legislation that I know we're going to address mm. later. And I, I honestly didn't know, would anyone be able to come, you know, at the, such a last minute? And it ended up being standing room only in mm. our little community center in mm. Lisbon, Iowa. We had people standing in the back. We had wow. over 70 people here, um, still as fired up as ever. And what is really interesting about this coalition of people, landowners and also, you know, people from the community who are concerned mm -hmm. about these pipelines. Right. What is really interesting about the coalition is that we've got people who otherwise would be politically from the right and from the left. And perhaps they're not used to being in the same room together, having a conversation. But here we're having a conversation. We're working together. We're seeing eye to eye on one issue that we hold in common. And it was such a remarkable event, you know, something unlike you would you would see under other circumstances. I mean, it it is truly amazing to see the way that neighbors are setting aside their differences and yeah. they're coming together on this issue. And, and I, I saw the recent Iowa poll showing that 78% of Iowans oppose using eminent domain to build a pipeline. But uh, Wolf would need to use eminent domain to accomplish its goal, correct? Well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Wolf is the only of the three pipeline companies in Iowa that actually filed their affidavit for petition for uh, with the Iowa Utilities Board on February 23rd. They filed it without requesting eminent domain. So this is very interesting uh, because on February 14th, just about 10 days earlier, the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association said that you know, the carbon pipelines are life or death. Those were their words, life right. or death for the ethanol industry and that they needed to have eminent domain to push the pipelines through. My, Two days later, Wolf filed without requesting eminent domain. So can, how, how can they can they do it? I mean, that, I'll, I'll give Wolf credit for at least not coming in saying we're going to take we're, we're ready to take people's land by force. But uh, logistically, would they be able to pull together enough parcels of land to build a pipeline without having to condemn anyone? 
Well, we, we the landowners think that they won't. So what we have done is because they decided to respect our property rights, which we appreciate, we thought we should inform them about where we stand on the issue. So uh, uh, we engaged in a real grassroots movement here. I just emailed and made phone calls and drove around and my neighbors did the same. We were helping each other. I cannot tell you the amount of time that went into this. Oh, I can imagine. We identified everybody in the corridor, and we've been contacting as many people as possible. And on March 10th, I posted a list of the names of landowners within the corridor who are saying no to the Wolf Pipeline. And that list was over 200 different families mm. who, in some cases, own multiple parcels of land in the corridor. And as soon as I posted that list, Four days later, coincidentally, or not, I don't know, <laughs> Wolf gave an interview <laughs> uh, in the newspaper and admitted that now they're pushing back their timeline. They seem to be delayed a year or more now. Mm. So I think they understand that this is very, this will be very difficult to push right. through uh, because the landowners are so well organized. And I, I'm going to say, I, my impression is that the only reason they said we won't use eminent domain is because they know public sentiment is so strong against that. But I'm guessing, too, that the reason Summit and Navigator haven't made a similar announcement is because they know they can't build their pipelines without eminent domain. And so you've got the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association coming up with this you know, study that they bought and paid for. <laughs> and that, exactly. that, that should immediately be suspect that says ethanol will... Will will die a horrible death if they if the industry doesn't get these pipelines, but I mean, are farmers buying that? I mean, even oh. even even farmers who raise corn and and sell it to an ethanol plant. I don't. My impression is they're not buying that. You're absolutely right, Ed. So at least in my section of Iowa, which is basically I'm talking about Lynn County and Cedar County, and moving further east, um, almost all of the landowners here are corn and bean farmers, and many of them sell directly to ADM. Hmm. And um, yeah, they're not buying it at all. And I think the reason they're not buying it is because even ADM, although they seem to be sitting on the sidelines here and not saying much, their actions have revealed a lot. Because like you said, the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association keep crying out and saying, this is life or death for ethanol. And then 10 days later, Wolf, who is, you know, working under the auspices of, of ADM, they're building this pipeline for ADM, is, right. is what it's for, Wolf files without eminent domain, which tells me, the timing of that tells me that in the end, ADM understands that they don't need these carbon pipelines. That's right. really what it comes down to, because we all know... Yeah you would have to trigger eminent domain to get a pipeline through because yeah. the pipeline's got to connect from A to B. You know, there's no other way to push it through that many hundreds of miles. It's... So ADM doesn't need it. And I and I think that, um, I, I think there's a specific reason why. Um, and that has to do with the, the tax credit structure that oh. everybody is talking the about. The 45Q tax credits, right. Yes, exactly. So there's the 45Q credits, which are for carbon capture and sequestration. And that's what's motivating the construction, the proposed construction of the pipelines. But there are these other credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, which are called 45Z 
Right. And those are for clean fuel production, which is what ethanol falls under. I know we could debate the, the merits of that classification, but that's what it falls under. Um, the 45Z tax credits are worth quite a bit of money mm. for the ethanol industry directly. Now, as it turns out in the U.S. code, any facility that takes 45Q money is disqualified from taking 45Z money. Uh, one or the other. All right. One or the other. You can't yeah. double dip. And so you think, so you think, you, you think AD, so is Archer Daniels Midland getting cold feet on the pipeline for that reason? I think it's not just cold feet. I think they've known about this all along. They mm. had a filing with the U.S. Treasury with the, with the IRS for clarification on mm. that tax point. That was filed, I believe it was December 2nd of last year. They have known all along that you can't double dip. But yeah. unfortunately, the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, Monty Shaw, and others have been they they conveniently left that out of the report. Ah, interesting, interesting. Hey, <laughs> before I, I want I, you could double dip. <laughs> Jessica, I want I want to make sure we get uh, we're running out of time here. I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about the legislation. Uh, the House, the Iowa House, passed overwhelmingly a bill that would uh, require pipeline companies to get ninety percent approval, ninety percent voluntary buy-in before they would be allowed to use eminent domain. That's a fairly you know significant uh, accomplishment. Do you think that would be enough to to put the kibosh on the pipelines that still want to use eminent domain? If that if that bill were to pass the Senate and, and get signed by the governor? Yeah, I think it absolutely would. Because of this reason, I think that a lot of people who have signed on Summit or Navigator, we're hearing stories now about landowners who did sign easements. They signed because they felt they had no choice. They right. felt there was no alternative. They felt that if they tried to fight for their rights, they would be financially yeah. ruined yeah. through the fight itself. And, so I, I think it gives landowners a little bit of breathing yeah. room, and you would, you would see the kind of opposition that we have yeah. uh, right here. But of course, yeah. but, but of course, the legislation has to pass the Senate and be signed by the governor. And there's some folks saying, well, the Senate's not going to take it up and the governor's not going to sign it. But there's a lot of political liability in that for Republicans. I mean, Brad Zahn was on this show two weeks ago, a Republican state senator who supports limiting eminent domain. He said, if we don't pass something, uh, it's, going to, it's going to put us on the road to being in the minority. I mean, he thinks that if the Republicans don't pass this bill, they're going to lose seats next year. And so that, yeah. that, to me, says that there's a lot of pressure on them to do something. And, of course, on the flip side, you know, there were, uh, what, 21 no votes in the House? 11 20. Of, what? 20. 20. Right, 20. 20. Yep. 11 of those were Democrats. So this, I mean, the astounding thing to me here is that Democrats still haven't figured out that this is an issue they could actually capitalize on if they had any sense at all. But here they have... They're providing more than half the votes against the bill. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, but I prefer to look on the positive side. There were many Democrats who did vote for it. True, you know? true. Uh, so I, <laughs> I won't go into the reasons why. I just try to look on the positive. But right. right now it is sitting in the Senate Commerce Committee. And by the way, uh, that committee canceled today's scheduled meeting. They just canceled Interesting. it. All right. So something's going on in that committee. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right keep, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you posted on that, folks. Um, Jessica, i got to run to a break. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. Such a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Folks, we've been talking with Jessica Wiskus. Uh, when we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about restaurants and what it means to be a local facility. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Greetings and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. You can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Hey, it's Kathy Burns joining me in the studio as we discuss restaurants and what it means to be a local venue. Mm-hmm. We like to eat out sometimes. We don't always get to do it because, well, frankly, we don't need to do it. We eat so great here <laughs> right. because we grow our own food. Um, but we, we think a lot about, well, let's, let's make sure we don't eat at a chain restaurant. Let's eat, let's eat somewhere local. So it got me thinking um, about the many different interpretations of what is a chain restaurant, what does being a really local restaurant mean, and uh, some, of the, some of the good and bad parts of all that. Yeah, and it's not, you know, it's not that simple because uh, you, can, you can have one single restaurant owned by somebody, mm-hmm. and that, that actually could be owned by somebody who's, a, who's an absolute jerk. That's, that's correct. <laughs> There's that too. A very local restaurant can, owned by a jerk. <laughs> can be a not very good influence on our community. Right. But then you, you've got a local restaurant. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got a business here in the neighborhood. You know, the owners have, have, have similar, have, have the same thing in like four or five different places in different parts of the country. Well, it's, it's local yeah. to us. Yeah, yeah. But it, um, it's a, like when does when does a local place that expands become a chain? So, um, according to a digital technology firm that provides products and resources for the restaurant industry, a place called Toast. It's a good name. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this is the definition. Their definition: a chain restaurant is a group of restaurants with many different locations that share a name and concept. That they can be either owned by the same company or be individually owned through franchising. So the yeah. trick is the word many. Well, oh, and the, the other trick is many. franchise. Yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. When I was a legislator, we worked on franchising because uh, I think it was McDonald's that wanted to 
basically change Iowa franchising law to make it so much friendlier to the big company mm-hmm. as opposed to the local person trying to, you know, you know, Forge arrange for that franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> well, New York went so far as to define the word, uh, you know, the number of local, local restaurants chain. a chain yeah. can have, or a, a local restaurant can have before they're a chain. So, um, how many they, is that? It's fifteen. Okay. So after fifteen locations, or at and after fifteen, New York says you're a chain. That means you have to list your calorie counts on the menus. <laughs> That's a funny connection. Yeah. Why, why, well, would, why, why would that not be a good thing for any anybody I, to do? I think. But I, that's yeah. what I don't think it should be mandated. Yeah. I but, I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah. That'd be an interesting thing to talk about some other day. Um, well, Ed, you like to call Des Moines the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Well, so, because we are. Yeah, we well. are. <laughs> and there are there are some some as you said some places that started here and they've branched out to other towns. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And some places that started in other towns that have come here and then kind of use the word local in their advertising because they've attached the, the words Des Moines at yeah. the end of the, the restaurant yeah. title. It's, it's, it's not it's, quite it's, there. It's, it's, not, it's not entirely black and white. I mean, to me, the most important thing is beyond, beyond food, beyond it's, – it's, it's the – well, there's several important things, of course. We, we love it when they source local food. We love it when mm-hmm. they treat their workers right, mm-hmm. when they respect the environment and the community. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to me, it's, it's really important, too, is if it's a person who lives in your community, mm-hmm. your town or nearby, they're investing the money they make back in the community in mm-hmm. all probability. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you're – and, again, if you've got a franchise, okay, the franchisee, the owner – of that franchise is going to you know spend money locally, but a bunch of it's going out to corporate headquarters in some other state mm-hmm. or some other country in some cases. Right. So to me, that's one of the most important questions. And and we talk a lot about too when we go to restaurants, we ask uh, how much of your food is locally sourced, mm-hmm. and we get different answers. And there are some types of foods that we do want to eat at restaurants that cannot necessarily source their products locally. We've had some entertaining responses. One <laughs> one was uh, I. I I asked one restaurant, uh, and I could tell they were kind of clueless. clueless. I said, "Do you uh, do you have any local ingredients?" And one, the, the gal looked at me and said, "Well, we serve pork." <laughs> oh golly, because we're in Iowa. We're in Iowa. And the, my funny one was um, uh, my friend from uh, the West Coast came, and we were going to have some uh, some lunch, and she saw some sushi on the menu, and she asked a. Uh, is your sushi fresh? And the server said, "Yes, it's flown in daily from Omaha." <laughs> so <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, 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 we get some fun ones. Um, not all chains are bad uh, necessarily. Um, a short list again. Uh, if they're if they're kind of part of the community, how do they treat their employees? Like Ed said, what's the pay? Do they have insurance? And another thing, do they push? what would otherwise be local businesses mm, out yeah, of existing locations yeah. or draw businesses away from your downtown or town center. Those are things to look for. Or if they're owned by a real jerk. And we've got, we've got a business here in Des Moines with a guy who is constantly being arrested for uh, sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's... Not good. He's tra- I mean, and he's finally found to the point where nobody's going to his businesses anymore. So yeah, that, that kind of resolves itself. It does. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Um, thanks to my guest this week, uh, Dennis Kucinich, and also Jessica Wiskus, and to our production team of Sherry the Vampire Slayer, Herdina, Forrest, not to be confused with the Gump, Detterman, 
Dr. Charles, Mr. Empathy Goldman, and Kathy, happy anniversary, honey. Again. Still, again, still <laughs> Burns, and myself, Ed, the recovering politician, Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. None of them chains. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to Des Moines Irish Session for providing the bumper music. Folks, we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back. Just a half a mile from the railroad track And you can get anything you want At Alice's Restaurant